Well, good Sunday morning to you. We have a, uh, a nice light topic here in Manasseh to cover today. As we said, that'll put us in the Thanksgiving mood. But it is what the Lord has planned for us in, in the process of our series. So we'll, we'll trust Him for the outcome as far as this is concerned. Let's pray and begin. We'll be in 2 Chronicles 33 today. 2 Chronicles 33. Of course, 1 Kings has its own description of Manasseh's life. Um, we kind of go back and forth, but um, 2 Chronicles gives us the, the base text that we will use for our study. Father, grateful for your plans for us. Thank you that those plans involve such a, a full description of life that we really are brought into thankfulness. When you uh, exhibit for us even the ruin of the wicked, when you display for us the opportunity for repentance that even the worst of sinners have in front of them, um, we are made to be, we are caused to be so much more grateful because on the, on the one hand, when the wicked reign, we need the encouragement that you are still in control. And when you redeem the worst of sinners, you remind us that that's exactly what we are. And we need a redemption and a, a repentant spirit and a faith that leads unto eternal life just as the worst of sinners need. And therefore, we do not exempt ourselves or stand outside or apart from them as if somehow there are really bad people over there, but fortunately we're not like that. Any goodness that we possess comes from you, so we really were like that. We desperately needed Jesus unto salvation, and we need your Spirit so that this side of salvation we grow and look like our Savior. So bless our study today. Give us the humility that we need of heart to rejoice in you and trust you in all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. A couple weeks ago, or the last week in, in change, when we were all at the wilds together, uh, we saw that skit, at least those of us who were able to attend, right? The, one of the skits of the wilds where choices is the subject of the skit, right? And you all enjoy that. Doesn't it feel like reality? My wife leaned over to me and was like, that is so like life. Choices, choices first thing. You, you walk in and you open your closet first thing in the morning, and what am I going to wear today? Okay, well, first you pull out your phone and figure out what the temperature is going to be before you know what you're going to, and then like, why am I doing this anyway? The weathermen are wrong. So I'm making my choices based on probably false information. And then you go on from there to, okay, well, just breakfast. Just get me to breakfast. And you open the, uh, the, the cabinet or whatever. If you happen to do cereal in the morning, you're like, oh, 12 choices of cereal. And is it going to be soy, almond, or cow's milk? You know, that kind of thing. And you go, are you going to put sugar on the Cheerios or leave them without sugar today? And no, it's not just sugar. Is it Splenda or is it this or that? And on and on it goes. And the, the number of choices that we experience in life today is so vast and a lot of the time so pointless or meaningless that we almost get the impression that it doesn't really so much matter what we choose. Did it really matter whether I put peanut butter or butter on my toast this morning? Did it really matter whether I did a hard fried or a soft fried? Like all, none of those things matter. And so this can wear on our spirits in a way that makes us begin lumping all choices together almost as one. We could have taken three or four different routes to church this morning. 
Uh, we have three different major routes to get here. I could go all the way out Wade Hampton and then come across Highway 14, or I could come up Pelham Road, or I could use the interstate. I like fast driving, so I always choose the interstate, if, unless it's, you know, we can tell ahead of time it's pre-clogged before we get there. Um, several people in my family will choose Pelham Road instead. I'm like, why would I choose Pelham Road? They're traffic lights. It's like light, light, light. I'm going to get stopped at all of them, so no way there. But again, a lot of these things are just matters of preference to us. But is life always just a matter of preference? The reality is this attitude of it's just preference can bleed over into our spiritual choices in such a way that the, the music that we listen to, the shows that we watch, the conduct of life is turned just into a matter of preference. The question is, does the scripture really reflect that? Yeah, I, we understand there are lots of things that don't overmuch matter. But do the scriptures imply then that nothing matters? The testimony that we have from 2 Chronicles 33 is that our choices really do matter. And that rebellion brings ruin, whereas repentance brings a return and a restoration. So let's read these verses together in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verses 1 through 9. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals, and made Asheroth, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall be my name forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And he used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I've commanded them, all the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. This is a testimony of the Lord, and it seems kind of grim today. And yet it does still lead our hearts to faith as God intends. There are some processes in baking that has to be done, have to be done exactly according to specifications. Some of you know this even better than I do, but they say you know, baking is chemistry. Uh, some of the rest of cooking is just art. But baking is chemistry. Uh, meringue is a good example of this. Dumping in all the sugar at once all the, the foam in the egg collapses, and you get a really dense brick. It, it may taste as sweet as the other product, but you kind of have to chew and chew and chew it instead of having it melt in your mouth. Dumping in the entire egg, yolk and all, 
Impossible. You have to use just the egg whites for a meringue. I've had several of my own adventures in baking in which the recipe was optional, and as a consequence, the food inedible. Okay, We've all been there if we're bakers at any length. There's often a right way and a wrong way in life. And choosing the wrong way really does matter. It produces an entirely different outcome, um, uh, even, if it takes t- even if that outcome takes a long time to mature. In the process of my study this week of this passage, I ran across a really great quote from another author. Uh, J.A. Thompson, in his commentary on First and Second Chronicles, wrote, If Manasseh had searched the scriptures for practices that would most anger the Lord, and then intentionally committed them, he could not have achieved that result any more effectively than he did. The choices that he made, treating God's will and God's way, God's instructions, the the recipe, as it were, for life is kind of optional. It's arbitrary. I know the Lord said to do it this way, but it doesn't really matter that much. We can do it in an alternative way and come out with at least as good results. And yet... His choices led to complete ruin. It's almost as if Manasseh looked for ways to offend God. He took everything that his father had done, everything good that his father had followed, and chose exactly the opposite. And we we know that sometimes this happens as far as humanity is concerned, as we grow up, teenage males, and they're starting to be like, well, I got to be my own man. Yeah, be your own man, don't be your own child. Being your own man looks like acting like a man, making decisions that are in line with truth and righteousness and true maturity, not acting like a fool. Yet Manasseh pushed away everything that his father Hezekiah had done, pushed away the entire word of the Lord and went his own way. And so the passage today testifies that because the way of the world is a way of ruin, the way of the world is a way of ruin holds out all sorts of promises. Maybe I'm going to discover something new that's an even better way of life. Uh, No, it's a catastrophe. Because this is true, we should follow God by faith, pressing into his way, finding out what his way is for our lives, no matter what stage of life we find ourselves in. The passage testifies that the way of the world is evil and deserves death. The way of the world is evil and deserves death. In a very real sense, all sin deserves death. That's why we can include ourselves even in a text like this when we look at Manasseh because we might not have uh, erected actual physical idols, but there are plenty of idols that our hearts do aspire to. I like the fact that when Isaiah kind of lampoons idolatry, what does he do? He'll, he'll talk about an idol. He'll kind of set it up in our mind's eye and say, okay, everybody, look at this. Here's the idol. Uh, let's make it out of wood or let's make it out of metal. Uh, talk about the wood to begin with. We go out to the forest and we chop down a tree. Uh, probably a water oak because we want to get rid of those, right? We don't like water oaks or maybe a sweet gum. <laughs> Hate sweet gum, all the burr balls around. So let's chop down a sweet gum tree. And uh, with half of it, we cut it up, use our log splitter, stack it. We're going to burn it during the winter for fuel. And with half of it, we go, oh, let's hand it over to a craftsman and carve an idol out of it. And we'll fall down on our faces and worship it. And we say, we would never do that. Yeah, our idols tend to be made out of plastic. 
uh, trace mineral elements. They, they often have LED displays in them and multitudes of other things. But our hearts are really not that much different if we're not careful. If we don't choose a way of faith intentionally, then we run in a way of death. Our sin, just like the world's sin, deserves death. We don't exempt ourselves from the weight of the biblical evidence on this score. But this general deserving of death also does not preclude special judgment that falls on those who pursue a way of death. Because Jesus Christ deals with our sin on the cross, and therefore we don't pay the penalty of death in the same way, even though we would deserve it. But the Lord specifically targets and says there are certain sins pursued intentionally that rise to a special level of judgment, not just the generic judgment on humanity. So I thought, I wonder how often this has happened, that people have built what ought to have been torn down, where culturally they have enshrined and ennobled that which is ignoble. They have elevated what they ought to have devalued and debased, and vice versa. And you know, nearly every continent has its lost civilizations, Nearly every place in the world that you can go to, maybe not Antarctica, who knows, perhaps we'll dig under the ice someday and find out there were really destroyed civilizations that were really wicked prior to Antarctica's being shifted by the Lord down to the southern part of the globe. North America has the Clovis. Have you ever heard of them? The Clovis people preceded the uh, Hopi and others in the American Southwest And uh, we don't have to buy into all the um, paleontological dates and things like that that people give about these. But there was a people group that anteceded a lot of the American Indians in North America, and they simply disappeared. And we don't know why, and we don't know how, but they were gone. South America has the Olmec, the Mayan, the Incan, and the Aztec. And if any of you have followed the news recently, just within the last month or so, There have been several articles published concerning Mayan civilization, and they're actually finding entire cities that have been swallowed up in the Amazon and been lost to the pages of history. And with new satellite imagery, they're penetrating the jungles and getting reflective um, radar signatures and things like that and mapping out their entire cities down there. This was an empire of magnitude, of depth, and of many, many, many years' duration, and it's gone. The people have disappeared. Where are they? What happened? We don't know. The Incans, the Aztecs. Now, now some of the later groups, we do know that when Westerners came and began settling these places, uh, the Spanish conquistadors waged wars against certain groups, disease spread to other groups and nearly wiped them out. So there are explanations for the decline of some of these groups. What about the Middle East? The Assyrians are no more the Minoans, the Mycenaeans. Uh, Proto-Greek civilizations, and yet the forms of Greek, both spoken and written, don't look like anything, or don't look anything like the the Greek, either Ionic Greek, Doric Greek, or Attic Greek of the other Greek city-states that we're more familiar with, and they're just gone. And they were well-known. The Mycenaean civilization was incredibly well-known in its own day. And we can still find cities there. And, of course, giving rise to certain legends of the Greek with a Minotaur and King Minos and 
many other things like that. We also have the Nabataeans who carved the city across Transjordan, um, carved cities into pink limestone and treasury houses in there, and you can go see them today, and you might see them on Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, and things like that. Gone, Nabataeans swallowed up. Africa has the Aksum and the Kush, as well as the ancient Egyptians, which are not the modern Egyptians, which descend from Arabs. The ancient Egyptians prior to and during Joseph's era were conquered by the Hyksos, who were conquered by, who were conquered by, who were, and, and on and on this cycling has gone on. Europe has the Kukuni, Kukuteni, Tripola. Had never even heard of the group. But they were in ancient Ukraine in Romania, that region of the world, before the Ukrainians settled that region of the world. And they had expansive control and have disappeared completely. Asia has the Khmer, the Indus Valley civilizations, likewise, that have gone the way of all the earth. And so often we don't know how they were destroyed. Each of the examples shows sufficient sophistication, construction, long-range planning, defensibility, and other features that make decline incredibly unlikely. Storehouses. They knew that famines come, so they had storehouses of food. How in the world did their civilizations decline? Sometimes these empires existed with no immediate surrounding empires, so they certainly weren't ravaged by warfare from outside, and yet they are no more. And so our uh, people who study ancient cultures speculate, well, maybe it was internal strife. That could have happened, right? I mean, factionalism, you'd, you'd start dividing your society into you know, Republicans and Democrats and things like that, and you, like the ancient world, you know, they equivalent, and you get them fighting at each other, picking at each other hard enough, maybe they'll rip civilization apart. Here's a good one. I, I enjoyed this, okay? On, on this side, there's like, these civilizations go back 250,000 years. Okay, whatever, okay. I don't believe the earth is that old, but people will talk that way, and here's one of the hypotheses for their decline. Climate change. I love it. I'm like, okay, so what did they do? And invent the internal combustion engine, and they changed the climate. And they, okay. It'll always be a proposal of doomsday. People, people need their uh, doomsday devices to point at. Disease from unexpected new germs that race through a population. I mean, the bubonic plague has been with us for thousands of years, so why all of a sudden does it take a particular form and um, some people who study germs say that it, it's a mutation. There's a point mutation in a disease that makes it especially virulent with an especially high death rate and especially high transmissibility because we know that high death rate, low transmissibility does not produce a, you know, a civilization-ending plague. It's got to be both of those at the same time. Over-accessibility through trade. I like that one. They actually believe that some of these civilizations disappeared because they got so successful. So they, they went out and they're like, hey, you know, I'll do trade with you and I'll do trade with you and I'll do trade with you and we'll build these great roads, these fantastic road systems and interconnections. And all those interconnections mean dilution of your civilization by immigration and dissimilar elements, oil and water aren't going to necessarily blend real well and Civilizations collapse by, according to the theories, over-accessibility. Overuse of natural resources. 
with a concomitant inability to extract enough energy to match the cost of extraction. What, what do you mean by that? Okay, well, everybody ever seen this Alone series? Anybody? On, on, so these guys get deposited in Vancouver, northern Vancouver Island, British Columbia. It's very inhospitable territory. And you think, okay, now how do you get, how do you get firewood so that you can cook your food so that you don't have you know, parasites and have to leave the, the, the program, the show. How do you get enough firewood in a place that rains over 12 feet per year and rains something like 250 days out of the 360 days a year? Everything is wet. And so here are these people scrambling around trying to get firewood, but sometimes the amount of energy they're expending to try to get firewood to cook their food that they need to have energy to expend to get firewood to cook their food. Sometimes they're expending more energy to get the firewood than they're getting from the food that they're able to procure, and they start losing weight and losing weight, and then they have to leave the season. They lose. The goal is to stay out there by yourself longer than anybody else. So that happens as well, overuse of natural resources. The way of the world is in decline, and it always deserves death, but the Lord has touched many civilizations through human history and eradicated them completely. And we don't even know why, when, or how in many cases. But the Lord turns to a person like Manasseh because of his wickedness and, said, and he essentially says to Judah, I'll tell you a little bit of the when and I'll explicitly indicate the why and the how. The why is because your sin has risen to be so great in my eyes that your civilization itself deserves death. How do we know that? Remember the repeated phrase throughout? They did more evil than whom? The nations that God drove out ahead of them. Well, God waited hundreds and hundreds of years for the iniquity of the Canaanites to rise so high that they actually deserved complete annihilation. God could have done it with disease. He could have done it with um, fire from heaven, but he chose instead to do it with Israel moving into that territory. But they deserve complete destruction because of their wickedness. And now Israel has done the same thing. More evil than the Canaanites that they expelled from the land. The world is involved with building what ought to be torn down. Now Manasseh was co-regent with Hezekiah sometime before Hezekiah uh, died. So he had lived in the shadow of his father, and based on the evidence of the text, apparently he was chafing at the fact that he had to live in the shadow of his father. He didn't like what his father was doing. He wasn't interested in his father's God. So as soon as his father was gone, he broke from the constraints of his father's religion and from the God that his father worshipped. Like so many people of the world, he decided that being his own man looked like copying all the surrounding nations. And we, we deal with young people a lot of the times. I deal with college students and things like that, and I always find it interesting, especially my teenagers, going, so why, why is being your own person look like everybody else? Dad, I don't, want to, I don't want to dress like I don't want my hair cut like that. I want it to look like everybody else. That's how I'm going to show my own person. I'm like, you're not your own person. You're just following a, another group. 
And know where the passage then tells us about his sin. Not only does he receive the typical designation of the other kings, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but added to it, the specific form of evil was imitative of the degraded nations around him, so much so that God calls it abominations. That's what Manasseh is doing. He's building up the very things that ought to be torn down, and he's tearing down the things that ought to be built up. His father had broken down wickedness, and Manasseh actively builds it. His father had cut in pieces the Asheroth, which is plural of the female deity forms that people were worshiping. His father had literally chopped them down and burned them with fire, and Manasseh replants them, lets them grow again. Consider how often the following go hand in hand in society, in the history of the world. I don't think it's an accident that those who tend to support all sorts of sexual perversion in society also then, on the other hand, over here support abortion or its ancient equivalent. Manasseh over here is supporting all sorts of sexual perversion. That's what these female deities particularly were connected with. And then over here, what is he also doing? He's building certain kinds of detestable idols in the Valley of Hinnom and offering the children of Judah up in burnt offerings to gods, destroying life. Functional atheism. Regardless of actual religious affiliation, a functional atheism that's really pushed God to the margins. All sorts of wickedness is going on in his era, and it's a wickedness that is incredibly corrosive and deserves death. The world worships what ought to be despised. While our current world calls evil good, it also wrongly thinks that wickedness stands on its own or that it's impersonal. Wickedness is not impersonal. It is backed by Satan himself and the angels who fell with him that we sometimes call demons. How do we know that? Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians in the New Testament? And he he navigates this really carefully. On the one hand, he says, don't worry about what's sold in the marketplace. Don't look into its background. Food is food. It's no big deal. Even if it's been offered to an idol, it's just food. It's just, you know, beef. You're okay. On the other hand, they'll say, don't eat meat sacrificed to an idol. In the terms of going into the idol's temple, working within our trade guilds, everybody from the wheelwright's trade guild goes into the temple and has a big party together, a big sacrifice to the various deities of ancient Greece and Rome and things like that. He said, don't participate in that. Don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Why not? Because it's being sacrificed to demons. Oh, the idol might just be gold and silver or stone image, but behind it is demonic power. Real entities that you cannot see who are actively influencing this world system and pushing it in a particular direction. So when Manasseh is engaged in this kind of idol worship, it's not just stupid. It's not just inane for him to do so. It's actively worshiping demons. There is no such thing as a ruler in Israel or Judah who was neutral towards religion in general. All were either actively advancing the worship of demons or the worship of God. And note specifically that the murder of infants is associated with the worship of demons. 
certain modern political and social movements think that they are neutral, that they are irreligious. We hold no religion. The reality is they worship demons. The world worships what ought to be despised. The world worships what leads to divine judgment and death. Third, the world values the wisdom of fools. Values the wisdom of fools. Where does that come? Do you see this big list of people? I think this is the most specific and lengthiest list of all the different types of people that Manasseh is following after. And it occurs anywhere in Scripture. Deuteronomy will sometimes put a portion of this list in one place and a portion elsewhere and describe it along the lines. But look at this huge list. Fortune tellers. Fortune tellers. These are people who seek information about how to prosper in the future from inert sources or from the spirit world. Fortune tellers. It's a worship of demons. Why? Because you only have two sources of information about the future. God, who actually can tell the future, and God's counterfeits, who can't tell the future but are really, really smart. And fortune tellers are dabbling really in forces that they have no understanding of. It's foolish. The, the best fortune teller, the best you could arrive at, is somebody who's ignorant and trite and doing this just to deceive people. Yeah, he knows he can't tell the future, but it's a fun little gig anyway. That's the best you can get to. The ones that really get into the craft have gone far beyond that and are dealing with darkness. What about omens? Omens is seeking information on life and life decision from purported signs. Uh, This happens all throughout uh, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. If some of you know classical literature, you you see an owl hooted. And the people are like, oh no, an owl hooted. What are we going to do? What are we going to do an owl hooted? And I'm like, well, we'd be in big trouble because we have a lot of owls up in the Parish Mountain area where we are. And I, I love going out both at night and in the early morning and listening to them. Like, oh no, an owl hooted. A black cat crossed our path. Well, we have two mostly black cats. I'm not too worried that somehow their crossing my path is going to lead to catastrophe, other than uh, the fact that I went out this morning because I heard a weird noise outside, and one of them promptly came up and rubbed all over my pant legs after I had changed for church. And I'm like, seriously? Go inside and trying to clean cat hair and dust and pollen. and Omens? Again, you go, that, at best, that is stupid. There are lots of birds. There are ravens. There are, there are crows. Why would you think that somehow that governs your future? Sorcery. Sorcery is seeking to influence and control other existing spiritual powers. Sorcery is about incantations, potions, things like that. But again, that I am using to control actually existing spiritual forces that are out there so that they do my bidding or influence the world in the direction that I want an outcome. Well, guess what? Those spiritual forces really exist. So if you're dabbling in any attempts to interact with spiritual forces other than God himself, those spiritual forces are dark. And they may lead a person along or string him along for a period of time while they seize on his soul. Continue. Mediums. 
Mediums are those who contact the spirit world on behalf of people. The spirit world on behalf of people. So we literally stand between others, right? We're in between. That is the medium. You come to me. I'll contact the spirit world for you. I'll give you an answer from the spirit world. A lot of the uh, pagan priestesses, particularly of the ancient world, were like this. If you went to the oracle at Delphi, uh, the uh, Epithian uh, Apollo, the Pythian Apollo would send it, you know, the priestesses would go down into a chamber, they would interact with the god for you, and then they would come back with an answer. Well, that's a medium, a go-between. Dealing with demons again. Necromancers. These are contacting the dead on behalf of the living. So I'm not, I'm not trying to reach the god Apollo. I'm trying to reach Grandpa. And I figure that since he's passed beyond, he can tell me some really important things like, Grandpa, how did you do it in the stock market? And where should I invest in the stock market going forward? The problem is, since the dead can't really communicate, with very rare exceptions. A student asked me that just this week, in fact. They went, Dr. Han, what do you do with this passage about you know, Saul and dealing with the medium? And then Samuel actually comes up, because doesn't that seem to say that you can actually call up the dead? And I said, no, I don't think so. Look at the, the medium's response. Anybody remember the response? What, what was her response when Samuel actually came up? She was terrified. Whoa! You know, before she's been able to pass it off. Hey, <laughs> you give me money. I'll go into my secret little chamber, pull the curtain shut. I'll contact the dead for you, and I'll come back with an answer. And then she goes back there and eats some Twinkies, probably some pretzels and some chips, watches television for a little while. And then she comes back and is like, oh, yeah, Grandpa said such and so. She's never actually seen this work. That's because it's not her power that allows it to work. God actually sent Samuel to testify of the death of Saul and his sons. She's terrified. But necromancers are trying to contact the dead on behalf of the living, but if they succeed, the only thing they've contacted are, again, demons who are quite happy to mislead people in the present life. Notice that every single one of these things, according to the Scripture, provokes the Lord to anger. Provokes the Lord to anger. God has spoken. And yet people of his day and people like Manasseh and people around us in society today say, not interested, thanks a lot, God, don't care. I want to go seek some more information besides the information that you've really given. Your information, worthless to me. It's no wonder that God is angry with it. Of course, God knows very well, better than any human does, just how powerful and dark the spiritual forces behind all of this really are. Manasseh pours himself out to fools, turning to demons instead of to God as if they could govern the outcomes. And yet that's no different from people in our world today. Seeking anything to gain an edge on the future. Trying to predict the future. And it's it's kind of funny because you, you deal with climatologists and you say, yeah, again, as, as Christians, of course, we're responsible. We have to take care of what God has entrusted to us because he expects us to do so. But no, we're not going to bring an end to the world by the means that you're saying. We will bring an end to the world via our wickedness. And God's bringing final divine judgment. And yeah, global warming is correct. 
just not the global warming you're expecting. The world is going to persist until the time of the end, and then God will cause it all to melt with fervent heat. He will destroy it. But he vowed repeatedly in Scripture that summer and winter and springtime and harvest will not cease as long as this earth endures. Take care of it. Yeah, be responsible people. But people that are worshiping the future in some kind of trying to manipulate sense, are not acting in wisdom. A number of serious accidents in our area have come from drivers trying to avoid squirrels. When I taught my children to drive, I have one more to teach. But when I taught the first two to drive, I says, you don't swerve for small animals. I said, now, you see a deer run across the road, slow down, still don't swerve. There are too many dangerous places in our area where you, you get yourself in... in uh, Big trouble quickly swerving. But what recently, or not sorry, recently, about four years ago, I drove by an area and a guy had swerved to miss a small animal. I'm not positive it was a squirrel, but some small animal. And he'd driven off the side of the road. There's a, an area near us where the road drops off right at, the, right at the road edge, down about eight or ten feet. He had this really beautiful, nice sports car, and it flipped the sports car and it was up again, upside down with the, the back end of the sports car leaned up against a tree. And unfortunately, the, the person was not hurt. The car was totaled. And it was a very humorous position of the sports car. But we look at that and say it's very foolish to try to avoid one little tiny thing that's not really so harmful and cause a, a wreck of your life or your car. You don't swerve to miss a squirrel and hit a telephone pole and kill yourself. It's stupid. You know, so many people are like, oh, you know, I've got I to look in here in my life and I've got to manipulate all these little details of life. And, and in order to avoid, you know, bad things in finances, bad things in the future, I'm going to engage in practices that God has forbidden and that makes a wreck of life. It takes the, the, the whole car of, of life and runs it into a telephone pole to avoid a little squirrel? That's not very sensible. The world trusts what cannot deliver. Some amazing promises attended the proper worship of God in the temple. God said he would put his... See the passage? God said, I will put my name in David's house, in David's city, Jerusalem, and in the temple Forever! And then he tells the people, you will never leave the land. You will never be thrust out by an adversary. Qualify. Qualify it. As long as you obey my word and follow me. Absolute glorious promises that God had given to the people. And if they had simply had faith and walked with him, no enemy adversary could touch them. Instead, Manasseh decided to negotiate different terms. God was out, pagan deities were in. They would deliver Judah into prosperity. And you say, again, stupidity on top of stupidity. Well, evil always is. What had Manasseh seen his father delivered from? Oh, just the world reigning juggernaut of the day. Assyria, massive army, nobody can stand in front of them. Pray to God and he wipes out their army. That doesn't happen, people. It did. 
God got involved very much so when an adversary threatened his holy city, Jerusalem, and his people when they were following him. And Manasseh is like, nah, the God of my fathers, no biggie. I'm going to take it into my own hands to make my own alliances follow my own way. Even today, Israel's hope is misplaced. Oh, they give cool names, even biblical-sounding names. David's sling is the name of one of Israel's major weapon systems. But the people's hope is really in their own shrewdness to keep ahead of the enemy technologically and their own military uh, preparedness to levy disproportional losses on an adversary so that attacking us, you know, Israel's saying, is too costly. You don't want to do it. In fact, given the lessons in front of us today in 2 Chronicles 33, I found it ironic. David had a prior name to David's sling. Sorry, Israel had a prior name to David's sling. It used to be called Magic Wand. No joke. They named it in the first place Magic Wand, and then they rename it David's sling as if somehow that makes it all good. What are they saying? If Israel were singing today, Our hope is in the IDF and all our technology. And it's tragic because God longs for better things for Israel, a nation repentant returning to him. As he longs for better things for us and all around the world, nation by nation, the people would repent and turn to the Lord. Verses 10 through 13, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. They paid no attention. You say, who's speaking to them? Oh, just small, insignificant people like Isaiah. All this testimony, and Isaiah constantly, all the way through the book, maybe Dr. Yeagley will teach on that for us sometime in the future. Uh, All the way through the book, though, you have this warning of judgment uh, coupled with this promise of blessing. Warning of judgment coupled with promise of blessing. Just turn to me and trust me all the way through. Yet instead, the people won't return. They pay no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army, the kings of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem and into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. That's why I say it's not so bad as a Thanksgiving message after all. Because one of the things my heart always needs comfort in is that God will forgive. That God will forgive. Fifty-five years. And the bulk of Manasseh's years are taken up in idolatry and sorcery and wickedness. So great wickedness that we're going to find out multiple summary statements when we come to, once we come to Josiah's life. An an actual prophet speaks in reference to Josiah and says, Josiah, I'm going to stave off the judgment because of your righteousness, but Judah is doomed because of Manasseh's sin. And then after Manasseh, we come into Zedekiah's life, the very last king of Judah, and the summary of the chronicler is, because of Manasseh's sin, Judah is doomed. There's nothing that can stave off disaster. And yet, and yet, this same Manasseh, 
that did so much wickedness that brought an irreversible judgment on Judah also repented. And as soon as he sought the Lord, the Lord didn't say, nope, sorry, too much wickedness, too long. I gave you a lot of time and he entreats the Lord and the Lord delivers him from bondage. Just very quickly, it's so many things. The world ignores the word of the Lord here. That obstinacy that deserves enslavement. The way of the world is obstinate and deserves enslavement. Demanding its own freedom, it actually becomes the slave of sin. How many people, even within our own society, flee from parents so they can be free? And become slaves, literal slaves. They become prostitutes, so they're slaves to their own sin. Hard even to talk about with people that plunge themselves into the worst positions of life so that they could be free? The world ignores the word of the Lord. Well, according to testimony and tradition, Isaiah was murdered by Manasseh. Sawn in two, literally, sawn in two. That's the kind of barbarity that Manasseh engaged in at this wicked stage of his life. Ignoring the Lord is not some benign, quiet, live and let live type of situation. Ignoring the word of the Lord is a defiant fist in the face of God. And it never results in good things. The world rejects the testimony of history. Again, I mentioned the fact that Manasseh had all the evidence necessary that God could defend the people against Assyria. And as soon as Manasseh chose a different way, what happens? He's captured by Assyria. And that whole, he was led away with hooks. Do you know what they actually did to prisoners? Literal hooks. Sharp hooks. He put it through the other guy's nose. Well, that, that's kind of painful, and it does a lot of things for you. Humiliates him, exalts yourself, shows off your own cruelty, tells anybody else, you want to mess with us? We'll do the same thing to you. In addition, it rather increases the docility of your captive. He's not going to try to escape with a hook through his nose. All the tenderness of the cartilage in there, some of you, you, know, you get socked in the nose or you've, you've tripped and fallen into the kitchen cabinets and you hit, hit yourself around the bridge of the nose and it's just like the eyes hurt and it goes like everywhere out from there. Yeah, put a hook through that and you're going to be able to lead him around wherever you want. You could just have a little string attached to it. He's following you. He's a captive. Rejecting the testimony of history, he's left himself actually in ruin. And yet our world somehow believes that atheism is benign, even though the atheists of history have been anything but. The world scorns the value of faith, and when Manasseh finally operated in faith, what happened? When he was in great distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord, and God brought him again. Just like that. Tell me, how many captives did Assyria typically release? Assyria is not even like Babylon. Babylon would sometimes release its captives. Assyria tortured its captives. Assyria delighted in cruelty. Manasseh prays to God, and Assyria lets him go. How in the world? Well, he finally got around to praying to the God that is. And the record of the scripture is that afterward, Manasseh comes back, and he tries to do so much good in rebuilding Nevertheless, the people still sacrifice at the high places. In other words, the degraded safety and peace may never be recoverable for a land. Manasseh repented. What about the rest of Judah? Mm, nah. 
Nah. They're satisfied in their sins. And so the way of the world is degraded and deserves removal, and God brings exactly that removal on them. One image to remain in 2 Kings 21, 11 to 16. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I'm bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such a disaster. The ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. What was the plumb line of Ahab? Do you remember that? It goes back a little ways. I think last year, right? Plumb line of Ahab. Jehu, come exterminate every last living, breathing descendant of Abraham. Uh, Abraham. Ahab. I don't want a single one of them surviving, and Jehu did. That's the plumb line. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. Scrub it out. It's empty, turning it upside down. Well, God forsakes the land in the end because of its wickedness. Many years ago, when when we were building a house, uh, it was not our house. I was working on a construction crew. We set a window in two stories up, Uh, But the boss was the one who was responsible to nail it in and didn't. So my brother and I set the window for him. He was on the outside on a a ladder two stories up. And I can't remember whether his air gun uh, ran out of nails or whatever, but he didn't nail it and went down the ladder and walked away, and so did we. A big gust of wind came and pushed the uh, window right out of its socket two, two stories up and fell completely smashed it. Well, you have experience with this, not, maybe not a window like that, but when you drop something that is highly breakable, you can never put it back together again. Manasseh repented personally, but he could never put the land back together again. And so the testimony of our scriptures today is because the way of the world is a way of ruin leads to death and destruction. Let's keep following God by faith. And part of that faith means Right now in a week like Thanksgiving, we look to him and say, you'll always accept a repentant heart. Even for sins committed over and over and over again, you'll accept a repentant heart. And so as part of our thanks, we offer up to you our lives once again. Father, we're thankful for this word. We're thankful that you again take us to the depths of ruin and darkness sometimes in relation to Uh, the judgment that you're bringing, and yet, and yet, the fact that you gave Manasseh 55 years reminds us that we can hold out hope for family members, co-workers, friends, colleagues, people in our neighborhoods that have walked opposed to you for decades, and we can continue to pray, we continue to testify of the grace of God, knowing that you will lead some of these to repentance. And similarly, the passage gives us great hope that if we walk with you by faith day in and day out, then we will personally not see the ruin that you would bring in judgment on a people, but that you will continue to deliver those who are your own. So we rejoice in you this week and give thanks that we have so great a redeemer in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.